Scripture today is out of book of Mark, chapter 8, verses 22 through 38. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 38. And this is the reading of the word of God. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And people told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You're the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels and all God's people said, Amen. Would you please join me in brief prayer? Jesus, I lift up this time to you. I pray that your spirit would speak to each one of us words of encouragement and conviction that we all need to hear. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. About a year ago, my wife, um, Hannah, she received a procedure called ICL. And for those of you who are in medicine or especially in optometry, uh, you would know what this is about. Uh, ICL stands for implantable columnar lenses. Uh, It's basically the next LASIK. And I'm, I'm imagining some of you might have received LASIK. And, you know, LASIK basically cuts parts of your eyes up with the laser so that it makes the light go into a certain angle. Therefore, you see better. Well, this uh, procedure actually makes a small incision into your eyes and inserts a semi-permanent contact lens. It's like, it lasts like 90 years. I, I see that by the looks of your eyes, like some of you are a little, so I know. Like, I was like, what? Like, is this going to make me like a superhero or something? Like, what's going on here, you know? Um, she got this done because a couple years ago, just one random night, we're on the bed and we're all ready to go to sleep and she's right next to me and she turns around and she looks at me and she goes, you know, I know that you're my husband, 
but I can't tell, except for your smell. Thank you for that, two people who laughed. Um, and, I, and I don't smell, all right? <laughs> like, I just want you to know that, okay? Um, but I thought it was problematic that my own wife cannot see me when she's right next to me. And I'm like, what's going to happen to your vision when you get a little older? Like, I, I don't know, you know? So I convinced her to get this done. Originally, we wanted LASIK, but the doctor convinced us to get this procedure called ICL. He said it was quick, it would be painless, it's new technology, it's the next thing. And we're like, all right, like, that sounds good, right? And so day of the surgery came, we drove to the center, and we're feeling pretty nervous, but the doctor was very reassuring. He's like, oh, don't worry, I've done this many, many times, it's short, it's painless. It was short, but it wasn't painless. Uh, maybe it wasn't for her at least. I mean, my wife has a high pain tolerance, like she's one of those people. And she came out crying. She was like, oh, this hurts, you know. But she, we had to stick around for about a half hour after the procedure because I guess the doctor needs to check to make sure that initially the lenses are settling well on her eyes. And so he said, yeah, why don't you just go downstairs and get something to eat and come back up in like half hour. So I'm like, you know, escorting her and she's like hurting and pain. And we're eating Subway, like there's Subway downstairs and she's eating her sandwich and she's like crying. She's like, oh, it hurts, you know? And I'm like, oh, but can you see? And she's like, yes, I can. You know, I'm like, do you know that I'm your husband? And she's like, yeah, I hate you. You know, no, she didn't say that, she didn't say that. Uh, And she was able to see, like, pretty well on the day of. I was amazed. And then the next day, the pain was mostly gone, and she was able to see even more. And then the second day after that, even less pain and even more vision. And I think by, the, by three days after the, the ICL, I mean, it was pretty much normal. She had to go into, like, a week checkup, a, a month checkup, and then she recently had a year checkup. But I saw that she had a progressive process of healing that was allowing her to be able to see better. And the reason why I share this story with you is because when we read Mark chapter 8, which by the way is known as the discipleship chapter, this is known as the discipleship chapter, right in the middle of the chapter we find a story of a progressive healing. Jesus comes into town called Bethsaida. People bring a blind man to Jesus. And Jesus takes this man, he spits on his eyes, which is like really gross. And then he lays his hands on him. And Jesus asks, what do you see? Do you see anything? And the guy goes, uh, yeah, like kind of. Uh, I see people, but they look like walking trees. And then Jesus lays his hands again on him. And then the Bible says the man's sight was fully restored. There are many questions that we could ask in this passage as we're reading. But the primary question I think is pretty obvious. Why? Why did Jesus heal this person in two steps? You know, this is Jesus, right? This is son of God, right? This is, this is God himself whose healing power was so great that in some incidents, when people would touch Jesus' clothes they would be healed instantly. But yet here, we find Jesus healing this man, not instantly, but in a couple of steps, spitting and laying his hands on him. And it begs the question, why? 
why did Jesus do this? Is it some sort of lack of faith kind of situation as in Mark 6? In Mark chapter 6, we're told another similar story where Jesus actually comes into his hometown. And then people bring to him or he's astounded by the lack of faith that his hometown people had. And the Bible records that he could not do much but to heal a few people. I mean, honestly, healing a few people is amazing, right? Like, I would love to heal a few people every Sunday. Like, can you imagine that? Like, that would be awesome. But to the Almighty God, something about people's lack of faith didn't really allow, and I want to be careful here by saying allow. I don't want to theologically offend anyone because people have written books and studied for their lifetime about why Bible records as if God could not do something, right? And so that, that's another story. But is this something like that? In Mark chapter 8, are we talking about something like Mark chapter 6? Some people have actually argued that this particular story may not belong to the Bible because it somehow taints the healing power of Son of God himself. That Jesus healed in two steps somehow shouldn't belong in the Bible. But when I think about the books of Genesis, the book like Genesis and stories of creation, where we all know that in Genesis we're told that God created this world in seven days, in steps or in stages. But I would bet that most of us here, we're not sitting here thinking, oh, why, why did God create it in seven days? Like, is he weak? <laughs> like, couldn't he just like snap his finger and make the entire universe appear in one hand? I mean, I suppose he could have. But he chose to do it in a rhythmical, orderly stages. And we're not reading that thinking, oh, well, God somehow is lacking in his power because of that. And so I don't think that our reading of the story as Jesus is somehow weak or that this story somehow doesn't belong in the Holy Bible, I just don't think that's reasonable. Then why did Jesus do this? As with any biblical story, we all have to remember that this was not written directly to us. The books of the Bible, the stories of the Bible, were written at a specific time period of human history to a specific type of people with a specific purpose. And we have to do our best to read as if our culture and our experience and our sight and biases and stories, pains and dreams are those of the originally intended audience. And that's an incredibly difficult feat. But most often, scholars say that that can be accomplished by reading of the context, the context of the story. Well, the stories that follow this two-step story, in verses 27 through 30, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And their answer is, well, people say that you're John the Baptist or you're Elijah. People, prophets who have died, but somehow they were reincarnated in you. Or they say that you're one of the new prophets. You're powerful. You're a good teacher. Blah, 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 blah. And then Jesus says, okay, who do you say that I am? And the disciples' answer is, well, you're the Christ. Peter, the leading disciple, says, you're the Messiah. And then immediately the Bible tells us that Jesus tells disciples that I need to suffer 
and die. And then Peter, the disciple who seemingly got it, right? Because people didn't understand who Jesus was. But Peter apparently did. This guy who apparently got it pulls Jesus aside. And the Bible says he rebukes Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? Like, I, like I love a good drama. Like, actually, I have a, a habit of, like, walking around and, and, and pacing, like, when I watch, like, movies at home. Because I can't actually stand drama and tension, but I love watching it secretly. So I'm like, I can't sit there. I just, like, prance around. Like, I don't know if you're like me or maybe I'm the only weird one. I, I don't know. But can you imagine, like, Peter rebuking Jesus? I, I want to know what he said. Like, I wish I was there. Like, did Peter say, hey, Jesus, like, hey, come here, bro. Like, I want to talk to you. You know, like, hey, um, you know, I get that you're the Christ, but, like, you know, the stuff about, like, you're saying, like, you're going to die and suffer, like, are you okay? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, it's not cool. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what he said, but it says that Peter rebuked Jesus. And Jesus must have taken Peter's misunderstanding seriously because it says Peter rebuked Jesus back. And not only did he just rebuke him, the Bible records what Jesus said, which was, get behind me, Satan. Did we ever call our closest friends Satan before? Like, please don't do that. You know, that's, it's, that's not okay. It's very hurtful. But Peter, or Jesus, calls his leading disciple Satan. Peter didn't get it. He didn't get it either. And then Jesus goes on to teach the rest of the crowd that he had gathered there with this hard teaching of whoever saves his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will save it. And the feeling, the sentiment that Mark wants the original audience to walk away with at the end of chapter 8 is that the people who listen to this teaching didn't get it either. They didn't get it. They didn't understand who Jesus was. In fact, when you read this entire chapter, discipleship chapter, we're given stories after stories of people who did not get it. First few verses in Mark chapter 8 is a story of feeding of 4,000. And if that sounds familiar, yes. It's because this is a subsequent miracle of feeding of the 5,000. This is something that Jesus had literally done before. And what do the disciples do? They ask Jesus the same questions that they had asked before. Wouldn't you think that if Jesus came and he brought like a bunch of Chick-fil-A or something, and then he, he looked at us and he was like, all right, there's like a hundred of you here. I only have like three sandwiches, but it's okay, I'm Jesus. Like, I got you, you know. And he like prays to God and, you know, we're eating, everyone's eating Chick-fil-A and we're happy. And we have enough for you guys to take home. You know, like that's literally what happened, right? Wouldn't you think that if we had seen and experienced that, the next time Jesus comes through and we're all hungry, like we wouldn't question him. But the disciples do. They say, Jesus, you want us to feed them? Where are we going to get the food? They didn't get it. And then the Pharisees, the religious leaders who always fought with Jesus, come up to Jesus and say, can you show us a sign that you're from God? What do you mean, show us a sign? Like, if I'm Jesus, I'm so frustrated, right? Like, what do you mean? Like, dude, I just fed 4,000 people in front of your eyes miraculously. Like, you really want a sign? 
No wonder Jesus says no sign will be given to this adulterous and sinful generation. Did he really mean that no sign will be given? No. He had literally just given them a huge sign. But he knew that the Pharisees didn't get it. They weren't asking this question to Jesus. They weren't seeking sign in order to understand Jesus. They were coming from a place of of them them rejecting Jesus already. They didn't get it. And then when Jesus turns around to explain to the disciples that, hey, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. The disciples turn around and start talking about, oh, Jesus, are you mad at us because, like, we didn't get the bread stuff? Like, what do you mean, east of the Pharisees? Like, did he have food that we, don't, we didn't know? Like, what's he talking about? Again, they didn't get it. <coughs> Excuse me. In fact, this chapter, Mark chapter 8, is structured with three stories of people who didn't get it. And then three stories of people who didn't get it. And right in the middle of it is the story of progressive healing of this blind man. Why? Why did God inspire Mark to write this this way? Turns out that physical blindness in the New Testament is a symbol for spiritual blindness. Turns out that when Jesus heals physically blind people, The real point is not just physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. And I think when we read the story as a modern-day 21st century American Christian, it's pretty easy for us to point out those who are spiritually blind, is it not? Like the Pharisees. They were always grumbling at Jesus. Whenever we read Pharisees and we're like, ah, enemies of God. They didn't know what they're doing. They eventually end up killing Christ. They asked for a sign when there was a huge sign that was performed in front of their eyes. They're, of course, spiritually blind. Or even the crowd that had gathered. What do you mean Jesus is John the Baptist? Clearly he wasn't. I mean, John the Baptist was another person. And people being reincarnated, like, that, that's kind of a, a funny philosophy. Like, that, that sounds like a pagan religion. That, that's something else to me, you know. Like, we, we can dismiss that. But the one spiritual blindness that I think should particularly concern people like you and I, assuming that most of us are Christians here, is the spiritual blindness of the disciples of Christ. The spiritual blindness of the people who lived with him. The disciples of Jesus lived with him. That was their custom. Following a teacher wasn't like going to school. They had to drop everything, their jobs, their families, their friends, and follow Jesus to learn from him. They breathed with him. They ate with him. They dreamt together. They learned from him every day. They watched his every move. He was talking to them all the time. Yet they did not get it. You know, a couple weeks ago, or it might have been last week, um, Pastor Steve, you you shared with us research from LifeWay where it says two-thirds of American evangelicals, so basically people who 
think that having a personal relationship with Christ is important. So perhaps many of you, many of us, two-thirds of people like us believe that Jesus was a created being. Two-thirds. And about half of those two-thirds, so about a third of American evangelicals, believe that outright Jesus was not God. I mean, are we really better? Are we really better than his disciples? Who didn't get it even though they lived with him? Are we really better than the crowds of people who had gathered, who thought that Jesus was just a nice teacher, or maybe a returning of a prophet? Or may I dare say, are we even better than the Pharisees, the people who oppose God, people who criticize God, people who outright rejected him in their hearts and still continue to question him, not out of understanding who he is, but out of rejecting him. And of course, I, I like to think that most of us here at Living Hope belong to the remaining third, the third of American evangelicals who believe that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Amen? Because he is. But I wonder if we have been seeing our life like that. If our worldview, if the way that we look at Christ is that he is God, then if the rest of our lives, then we're having that kind of vision. Or if we are seeing our lives as if people are walking trees. Because wouldn't you say that if Jesus is God, that everything about our lives should change. Is that right? If Jesus is truly God and the reality of the biblical terms is true, that there is more to this life than what we see, that there is an eternal consequence, that there is an unlimited God who is beyond our imagination, yet who came down to be right among us. And if we believe that his spirit is still active in this world, convicting people to repentance, giving people power to believe and to save and to love and to forgive, then wouldn't you say that everything about our lives should change? Our relationships, our goals, our dreams, our careers, the way we look at our money, the way we forgive, the way we love, who we love. I wonder if we here and those watching at home, if our daily lives are truly, truly one of following Christ. Have we compromised? Have we compromised this whole following Jesus thing? And please don't be offended um, as I share, share some of these things and ask some rhetorical questions. I mean, are we satisfied? Because we managed to somehow get up in the morning and not look at Instagram, but instead read an excerpt from our Bible app. Are we, are we satisfied with that? Do we think that we have done a good job because we spent five minutes in prayer before going to sleep, thinking that we follow Jesus that way? Are we 
feeling like we're receiving a heavenly pass because we showed up to worship service today. Don't you think that if Jesus is God and reality itself is based upon him, then don't you think that there is more to it? Have we compromised what we are willing to give up? Jesus, I'll give you a little bit of my time. And thank you so much for volunteering your time. Like, I, I really appreciate that. And, and I'm encouraged by everyone who serves. But have we been saying to Jesus, I can give you a little bit of my time, but don't touch my family. I can give you a little bit of money, but don't touch my dreams. I can give you a little bit of my sacrifice, even my humility with my church cell group, but I'm not, my, not at my workplace. Is our faith just a crutch in hard times? And knowing that this is hard times for many of us, I'm so sorry. And it's okay. God is absolutely passionate. He hears you. He knows your cries. But at the same time, are we remaining there? Are we thinking that our faith is something that we can just go to when we have a need? Or is it actually the goal and the pursuit of life itself? You know, um, I feel like I, I, I share this with you every time I get to teach on Sundays. Uh, uh, but, but I moved recently. I live in Cerritos now. Cerritos gang, where are you? Oh, you're not here? Oh, okay, yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, you're cool. Uh, <laughs> but no, no, they are cool. Uh, I Thank you so much uh, for those who have come by and visited us and blessed us in different ways. My wife and I have really been enjoying being back. And this is uh, a sort of an OC homecoming for us. And I know Cer Cerritos is technically Orange County, but, I mean, let's face it, none of us who live there think we live in L.A. Like, we all think we live in the OC. And so this is a homecoming for my wife and I because I grew up in Fullerton. Uh, I, I went to Sunny Hills High School. Go, go Lancers. Uh, my wife grew up in Cerritos. She went to Cerritos High. And that's okay, whatever. Um, but I, I love, I, I forgot how much I love Orange County. Like I, I love suburbia. I, I, I forgot. Like I, I moved out. I went to USC for college. So I moved out to LA and I lived in downtown for a long time. And Excuse me, I, I thought I enjoyed it, and that was good too, but as an adult coming back, I'm like, man, like, I, I miss this. I, I miss the wide roads with, like, 50 miles per hour speed limits, no traffic. I, I know there's a lot of traffic on the 91 and the 405, but I just drive locally from Cerritos to Brea, so sorry. I, I don't really face traffic. I love how clean things are, like, everywhere that I go. Um, pockets of, like, small-town feels. The weather is cooler. People are so, like, friendly and relaxed and nicer. I mean, the other day I was eating uh, dinner at Urban Plates on, on Imperial. And, like, as we were eating, like, some family, random family came up to us. And they're like, you know, I just heard you guys talk about, like, Jesus. And let me just encourage you, you know, like, stay with the faith. You know, I'm like, amen, like, hallelujah, you know. And, like, I just feel like there's a lot of believers in this neighborhood who want to be vocal about their faith. And just awesome. Like, we love coming back. This is a homecoming for us and one that we are enjoying. But, you know, coming back as an adult, 
I'm realizing things about our neighborhoods that probably exist everywhere in this country, but that are particular in our neighborhoods that I think we can all easily fall into. It's a trap that we can all easily fall into. Because let's be real, the neighborhoods that we live in, it's, it's pretty affluent, right? We live in a middle, upper middle, maybe even upper class neighborhoods. A lot of us, you know, by grace of God and your hard work, we have good jobs. And I, I know that some of us are struggling. And again, you know, I'm so sorry. And we are praying for you. And we have means, our church, to help you practically. But the way we are in this pocket of Southern California, I believe we can easily fall into the trap of a lifestyle and a culture of gaining and not losing out. Gaining and not losing out. And it starts out early. When a freshman enter college, uh, in, in today's terms, they call it scoping. Okay, so if you ever want to be cool, uh, scoping is the term, all right? What it means is they're, they're, they're looking. They're, they're checking it out, you know? They're, you know, guys and gals are checking each other out. They're, they're scoping, all right? And in sophomore year, they settle into a friends group. And then junior year, they, and, and by sophomore year, they settle in and they meet somebody. And then by junior year, if they're lucky, they, they start dating. And then senior year, they get serious. And then after they graduate, hopefully they get a job to their liking or they get into a grad school of their choice after gap year or whatever. And then they become really serious. They get engaged. And then by the time they hit their middle or late 20s, they're going to get married, right, at the same venue over there, Hangar 21. Everybody gets married there. I don't, I don't know why. And then they have kids. And hopefully by, like, early 30s, they have a couple of kids, and then they have saved up enough money because by the time you went to med school or you finished law school or whatever, you're starting to make real money and you're saving up so that you finally move out of your lease apartment or condo or whatever and you buy a house. And then you probably want to move into a neighborhood called like Placentia or Yorba Linda. And you want to make sure that your house has, you know, two floors, four bedrooms, two and a half bathrooms and a pretty decent yard and maybe a swimming pool. That will be a plus. You want to get a fence. You want to get two dogs or cats if you're into cats. And then you want to make sure that you start saving up enough and you're teaching your kids right. Join a church, become a member, put them in kids' ministry. Make sure that you serve in youth groups so that you're, you, you, you can invest into their kids' faith. And then hopefully by the time you're 40s and you're 50s, you get to repeat the cycle all over again. And then you get to have a retirement and have a nice life. Does that sound pretty familiar? Yeah, because that, that's, that's my life too. That's what I want too. But I want to be bold here today and say that if our lives are about more about gaining and accumulating and not losing out for the sake of Christ, that we're spiritually blind. That if you and I are about Jesus, who can give us stuff, especially when we're in need, rather than Lord of it all, who has created all things, who already owns everything that we have in our lives, that we need to obey and give back whatever it is that he's asking us to give back, then we're spiritually blind. If our lives are more about loving people who are our friends, who look nice, who are into things that we're into, who connect us culturally, socioeconomically, politically, 
and not the other, not the poor, not the broken, not the dirty, kind sinners that we don't want to hang out with. If we're not about loving our enemies, then we're spiritually blind. If our lives are more about getting to a place in life rather than following the author of life himself, then I need to say we're spiritually blind. Jesus puts it this way. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and profit his soul or forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? I want to end our time with this. Um, in verse 23, Jesus spits on the blind man's eyes. He spits on him. It's like really gross and weird. And in fact, this is the only time that Jesus spits on somebody. He actually spits three times total in the New Testament. First is Mark chapter 7 where he spits away into the ground. And then next is John chapter 9 where he spits on the ground to make mud, mix it with the saliva and apply it to a blind person. Here in Mark chapter 8, this is the only story in the Bible where Jesus is seen spitting directly onto somebody. Turns out that spitting, the act of spitting and, and the saliva itself is a disgusting and disgraceful and offensive act. More so than how we would consider it. We might consider it gross and offensive too. But more so than that. That's the act that Jesus does. And some have argued that Jesus is doing it because the pagans, the Gentiles, the non-believers at this time thought that spitting was a superstitiously healing kind of act. But Jesus was a Jewish man. So I think when we're reading it, we have more reasons to believe that Jesus was performing an intentional act that was offensive, that was unacceptable, that was disgraceful, and even disgusting. Why did Jesus do that? To make a point about spiritual blindness, why choose such an offensive act? Well, this isn't the only time that Jesus applied bodily fluid on someone. Regards to their spiritual blindness, isn't it? Because the next time, or the last time, I guess, that Jesus applied his bodily fluid was on the cross, shedding his blood, poured upon us for forgiveness of our sins. Church, what I want to say is that this story is our story. This is not the story of somebody that you don't like. This is not the story of a person that you're thinking of. This is not the story of our neighbor or our friends, but this is a story of you and me. We are this blind man. We are this person that Jesus applied the blood of himself over, and yet we're still not able to see him clearly. And yet our lives are not necessarily about only him. Our lives and our hearts are full of idols and dreams that are other than Jesus, 
even though we have been saved by him, even though we have come to believe him. This is us. But I don't want you to feel guilty. I hope we feel convicted. Knowing that what we have is a God who loves his people radically. God who loves his people radically. In fact, after applying his bodily fluid on this blind man, Jesus didn't stop there. He laid his hands on the man again. After applying his own son's blood on the cross, God didn't stop there. He sent his spirit, and by the power of his spirit, his son was raised from the dead. And church, I want to tell you, if you have been like me, where we confess Jesus as our God, but yet there are areas of life that truly doesn't reflect who he is. Let us repent. Let us repent. But let us be hopeful, knowing that Jesus will touch our blindness once again. Jesus says, In verse, excuse me, in 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let this be the prayer and the attitude and the driving force of every single inch of our hearts and of our lives from this day forward. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? And if there are any children among us, then, oh, there are no children. I'm sorry. That's my fault. Sorry about that. Let's play together. Jesus, I just want to say that we're sorry. Sorry that you are God who spared, who didn't spare your own son for us. But yet we're still out here lost, asking the same questions rejecting you the same way, holding on to things that are not of yours. Lord, we don't have what it takes to understand. We don't have what it takes to follow you. But you, God, are a gracious God, God who touches us again and again. So I pray that you would touch us now here at Living Hope, that we would truly be able to see who you are, that we would look at this world and tackle it with the mindset of losing it all for you, God, rather than gaining more things for ourselves. Thank you for the blood that you have shed. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the eternal, eternal life. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.